So we combine compliance with technology and then magic happens. Welcome to Structural Shifts by Aperture, a bi-weekly show that radically reimagines the future of work, society, and business. We take a devil's advocate approach to exploring the massive shifts transforming our economies and our world, and our guests are not afraid to challenge the status quo. To learn more about Aperture, visit Aperture.co. Our guest today says that embedded finance represents a market opportunity projected to be worth $7 trillion by the year 2030, which no doubt helped them raise a very healthy seed round through Y Combinator recently. Your host, Ben Robinson, is speaking with Hassan Nawaz today. He is co-founder and CEO at Hubbock. This is a banking as a service platform that enables brands to open new revenue lines by seamlessly embedding financial products into their customer journeys. Hubbock takes care of all the regulatory requirements and manages compliance risk. And this allows their customers to get their services to market in less time with fewer resources. In this episode, you are going to learn what banking as a service or BAS actually is, and it's not the same as embedded finance, what's happening right now in the BAS landscape, the difference between BAS 1.0 and 2.0, and more. And before we get to the show, let me just say happy birthday to the Aperture team. Our marketing and strategy consultancy is two years old. And in case you are brand new to us, we design, build, fund, and scale digital age companies. Now on with the episode. Hassan, welcome to the Structural Shifts podcast. We are delighted to have you on. I think you know we're catching you early in your trajectory, I think. I mean, you're clearly on this massive growth journey. And even though Hubbock might not yet be a household name, I don't think it's, it's a question of if, it's a question of when. So we're so excited to have you on. And we're going to talk all about the next generation of banking as a service. Thank you. Uh, excited to be here. I mean, it's amazing. I have read through some of your older articles when we were starting. So uh, I think it's it's a pleasure to be here. I thought it might be a good jumping off point might be just to define what we mean by banking as a service. So Hassan, what's your definition of BAS? So banking as a service, I think there's a trend right now going on that everybody seems to be doing banking as a service. So it's, it's mixed exactly. up now, eventually. So everybody has a different definition. My opinion is, my personal point of view on, on banking as a service is, if you use the word bank, you should be at least a chartered bank. You can't be an electronic money institution saying that you're a bank. So uh, I think there are, two, from my definition, there's banking as a service version one, which exists for the last four or five years. And, and then there's the next generation. So for me, a banking as a service provider right now is normally a regulated entity who has uh, clumped together, you know, KYC, AML, and a different set of tools from different service providers and, and you know, slap an API on top of it. And, and, you know, they go out to the market and say, this is banking and service, and which worked great for the last four years. Just in terms of definitions, a lot of people use the term banking as a service interchangeably with embedded finance. Yeah. How do you differentiate between those two terms? From our point of view, it's a clear distinction between two different go-to markets, two different uh, type of customer bases, and also stacks. It's it's completely different thing. So you know, think let's let's make an analogy against, for example, you know, before um, Amazon Cloud or Google Cloud or Azure Cloud, there used to be you know these data center service providers, like they were monolithic systems where you have like you know a, a single service provider, and you know they have a couple of data centers, and and they were they were building some kind of you know. Uh, layer of software on top 
So you see, there's the previous generation or banking as service providers, which is the version one, let's say, and then there's embedded finance. So the version one, you know, service providers, it worked great, similar to analogy of, you know, data center service providers before the cloud happened. So uh, the difference is it works great in your your specific use case. It helps a lot of startups to become fintech, you know, N26 were built on top of Wirecard and, you know, GPS and everybody else. So... That worked great. But embedded finance is talking about embedding these fintech features and these financial services into your existing products. So we are talking about a whole different kind of customer base, if if I was to say, especially in the B2B space. And it's kind of like having a sleeping majority of people where you have to first educate and also they need to understand what is the value prop for them. So mostly it's about you know monetization and retention for them. And if you are looking at how they access or they want to access these financial services, they are not looking for signing, you know, seven different contracts and you know waiting for a year and setting up a compliance team. You know, their business might be freight forwarding, accounting, retail, vendor payout. So there's all of those B two B stack companies on the business operating system. So to to kind of like provide services for these kind of service providers, that's where I think embedded banking service providers need to come in like us for example we 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 target that kind of customer base and help them understand like what what this can provide but it's kind of like a white glove managed service to be honest you have to kind of you know make a make a single kind of like a layer which which kind of takes care of compliance and all these different you know hard things which is you know settlements and all that stuff and kycs and amls and regulation uh, you kind of like you need to make that show that the customer is not you know affected with it so in a way that they want the feature but they don't want the hard things about it so how can you build that layer on top is is i think there's a- so essentially the difference between bass and embedded finance is really looking from the vantage point of whether you're on the supply side, whether you're a license license holder, or whether you're on the demand side, whether you're a brand that's looking to offer financial services through your existing distribution channel yes. or, or together with your existing offering, right? Is that the way to think about it? And you're the orchestration layer that sits between the supply and the demand side. You make it, mm-hmm. you make it possible for, for existing financial services providers to, to open up new distribution channels and you make it possible for non-financial services to offer financial services solutions for the first time. But it's not about, you know, providing APIs. So it's it's more about managed versus non-managed. So just to give an analogy, I think that there are quite a few in the history, but for example, before Shopify or before Stripe, both of them, you know, banks were giving acquiring channels online so you could take payments and people were setting up e-commerce stores. I mean, I was a software developer. I, I set up a lot of e-commerce for, for companies. And now the difference is now anybody can do it, right? So that anybody can do it comes with an enabling through a different kind of take on risk compliance and making sure that anybody can access that. That's where you can actually seamlessly embed in your in your value proposition those features. Uh, if you cannot do that, if you're going to have to set up you know, compliance calls and have to set up a whole department of looking at AML policies and drafting them, then you're probably not going to, you're not there yet for that, you know, no code kind of embedded happening. So that needs a lot. If we go back to sort of the early 2000s, now there was a lot of white labeling that was happening, right? So a lot of supermarkets started to offer insurance products. They started to offer banking products. The difference here 
is the extent to which this is truly seamless. Is that is that right? Or the, and the speed with which you, you can change providers, the speed with which you can onboard. How would you draw the distinction between white labeling and embedded finance? If you see a little bit even more further down back, we remember, you know, it was like, it seems like now everybody's doing banking as a service with cards and accounts, uh, yep. which was basically co-branded card programs from the past, right? Every bank had one. Every supply chain had a co-branded card with, you know, there are still active ones with big ones, but most of them failed because actually there, I guess there was no real customer pain being solved for the end user by just giving them more and more cards. So I think that that, that is very true. So that co-branding worked for some, you know, companies, bigger ones. Let's say, for example, in Spain, they're like Zara's and these guys who, are, who have distribution power and they, they really you know, enable their customer to use something and in return they are getting rewards and stuff. But that only works for a certain limit, right? How many more cards do you want? So if you look at now what is happening, I think it's not about how easy the access is. It's more deeper stack level, you know, features. So for example, it's not about only issuing a debit card or a prepaid card. It's about can you enable people or customers of yours to have access to real IBAN and MAP bank accounts actually guaranteed by a local banking partner, and they can pay taxes, salaries, receive money, send money, just like a high street bank. In a nutshell, I think it's about feature parity with a high street bank and provide it for a new generation of like fintech or non-fintech player to able to use those features because normally they cannot get those. Right. So it's about uh, changing the scenario of how banks used to be. So, um, I mean, they are the best people to do compliance and they've safeguarded it for hundreds of years. I mean, there is no question about it. But I think the, the, the scenario has changed in a way that now you cannot go full stack into the market to the end user and be also covering the wholesale side of things. Now, there's an opportunity, I think, for in this case, I we work with smaller banking partners. So uh, for smaller entities who have like a smaller liquidity base and user base, I think it makes sense to kind of become the store of value and the store of compliance and safeguarding. You know, the, that's the core which they are really experts on and leave the distribution to, to providers who can really make better customer experience by embedding them into different. So you are, you know, you get, uh, so as, as a regulated entity, you get the deposits and, you know, you, you are the set, you know, value store eventually. And the, all the features which you are distributing through your own channels now are being used through an API and, you know, have 10x or 100x more reach to customer bases because you're getting aggregated access to those customer bases. Just to give an example. So, for example, one of our customers, uh, WageStream, and they do early salaries, right? So they, they launched Spain and they said, like, look, we're going to need 300,000 accounts. Now, our banking partner had, I think, one-fourth of those. So for them, it was like, wait, what? So I think it's it's uh, smaller entities. Uh, they, it really helps with opening a revenue stream. You know, indirectly, you don't have to put your marketing out. So, uh, and and also the regulator is happy because you're holding more balance and and you can use it for different you know other accesses. So that is that is where we see both sides getting some kind of like interest. So it's not about only giving prepaid cards. Is is sort of driving more of a distinction between manufacturing on the one side and distribution on the other. And the reason it seems that people are so excited is because the, 
you're now distributing banking through a channel that has higher engagement, lower cost of customer acquisition, the potential for high lifetime value because it's easier to cross it and upsell because you understand the customer context. So is that the reason why people are just, you know, just over themselves with excitement about embedded finance? Because it's about growing the addressable market and and making banking much more contextual. Yes and no. So it's not about only the user experience. You can you want to give the best feature to the user. But in return, what are you getting? You know, there's a saying about if something is free, you are the product. So if you are providing the customer something, what is the benefit for the person who is providing it? So why people get excited about it or or venture capitalists or investors or or in general, every company is going to be a fintech company, they say. So I think every company at some point touches the payment stack. So the the value prop or the USV for the company or the provider is that I get to see and improve my retention of my customers or I'm looking for monetization and I tap into lending kind of products and, you know, increase my, my unit economics by increasing the APR, by adding an intro tech provider, get affiliate fee on top of it. So if you have a distribution channel, you can add on top features by, you know, working with embedded provider and, and get a revenue line on top of, so you're monetizing your user base. And then people like N36, amazing company, they were the first ones to, you know, start overdraft and then they started, you know, non cash to cash conversion from stores in, in Germany. And then now also, I think the last time I checked, they were embedding, you know, Grab also does it. Uh, they embed uh, Chubb, for example, the insurance company product. So they embed seamlessly. So instead of, you know, going and filling out forms for insurance while you're traveling for three days, you just hit a button and it automatically works. So this is Yes, the user experience is great, but also the provider is getting something out. It's not about just contextual user experience. It's about what are you getting out of it as as a provider, right? And then, of course, the, the service provider in the background always gets some revenue. So I think it's both sides of the table, the customer and user and the provider. And what, what you just said there about N26 is interesting because we tend to think about embedded finance as being embedding finance into, into non-financial channels, but it can also be embedding into existing financial channels. It's just the difference is you don't have to build everything yourself, right? Exactly. I mean, you're not going to start doing underwriting for an insurance company. They do better. So you want to work with yeah. one of them, right? They, they understand probably more risk profiles than, than a fintech can because the wider data set across multiple services and you know, the history of uh, underwriting all those risks. So you end up working with one. The question is, which is the better one? Or do you want to go and spend seven to eight months integrating with one? Or you just want to come to, you know, a platform which which provides different sets of services and you want to pick one and, and use it. So I think that, that that is what happened, for example, with, you see, uh, Amazon Web Services or Google Cloud as well. They started with service for the internally. They were built for internal use of Amazon itself. And then they started on top of features. And then now eventually, for example, you just join AWS for the hosting service. And then you end up using, you know, Elasticsearch and AI models. And, you know, there's like a ton of services that you don't. And you think about why I don't need, you know, I don't need to build it. So I don't need to reinvent the wheel. It's already there. Use it as a service. And the cost actually is pretty similar of integrating versus managing it. So that's why people start using a cloud provider instead of having, you know, your own data centers. So I think there, there, there's an opportunity over there. 
Hassan, let's talk a bit about the landscape for BAS because a lot of people think that all BAS providers are essentially the same because ostensibly it looks like it's just a question of APIs and linking with brands on the demand side and banks on the supply side. And so everybody kind of gets lumped into the same bracket, but it's actually much more nuanced and layered than people think. So help us out here. Help us, if you can, to sort of provide a schematic of who does what and what the differences are between the different BAS players. Let's, so, for example, let's start with 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 somebody who we already know is like Shalaj Bank, right? So they are yep. full chartered bank with the Buffin. They have the right to say that they are a bank because they have a charter, and and then they have you know brought in a couple of service providers for KYC on on you know AML, some processors, a lot of different things. That, although everybody talks in terms of partners, but we all know the partners behind. So eventually, they've got a license and some partners and then stitch it up together and then have a great API on top. The value proposition for the customer is good because you know it gives them security of a full bank license and they, they can passport hopefully in other European countries and also you know the lending part. So it's if you think about how they make more money is not only on you know account basis, it's more about how they're and this came out of on, on a report. So uh, I think that's that's there's a lot of uh, revenue for them and and that is also value proposition for the customer because it's not only cards and accounts, they have a German IBAN. so it's a very good you know proposition for the local market in Germany especially. Then you have the likes of Modeler, Railsbank, Swan, or uh, older yep. players like Trezor, you know, from France. They have they have powered a lot of good startups who became fintech. You know, Spendex and Contos, and all everybody knows about them. And then there's you know there was Wirecard, the original you know service provider. Yep. <laughs> what happened over there is isn't is bad, but what they built initially was an amazing scalability of the product and. You know, they, they powered like likes of Curve. I mean, they have innovative companies who built on top of the N26 or number 26, the original name came out of Wirecard AG. I was one of the first customers. So we had a card transparent and the name on the back. So that was, that is great. So that is regulated on, you know, lower level than a bank charter, but doing similar things, no lending, nothing like that. Here's an account and a wallet most of the time. And if you want to go fast, let's do a prepaid card instead of a debit card. It's a higher KYC requirement for a debit card versus, you know, lower against a prepaid card. Where that's where Revolut started. It didn't say debit on the card; it just was a card from Mastercard. So that is like having any prepaid card right? attached to a wallet. And then you have the likes of in US, if you look at, you know, Snaps. Yeah. And they they are running on top of a banking partner, one partner. They integrated with them. And they're running on top of it. So similar to Synapse, but not having the regulatory and compliance obligations of you know running the whole stack by themselves. So this is kind of like where you see different service providers, but their offerings change as well because they're mostly you know in their countries uh, wherever they are. So Synapse is in the US or where the partner bank has access. Uh, under Baffin, Solaris Bank is a German bank eventually, right? Uh, it's not a fintech. I mean, it is a fintech, but it's also a, a bank. And then you have uh, the likes of Railsbank and, and, and Swan and Trezor and everybody else. And then in US, you have Unit and Bond and all those players doing different things. So this is all 
what I think as monolithic. Everybody built, you know, one of everything, one of service providers, one KYC, one AML, one processor, one of everything, one so carbon factory. It's kind of monolithic in the so even yes. so it can be it can be vertically integrated. Yes. Like some something like Solaris or 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 Marcus, for example. Or it can be modular. So as you said, yeah. Synapse and so on. But but it it's tends to be monolithic. but it tends to be narrow in the sense that it's a single geography or a single vertical of banking is that is that is that right yes okay yes. so that is how it worked right so somebody was powering the fintechs of of neo banks and somebody was starting to do for you know focusing on expense management softwares uh, a little bit on corporate because corporate had a higher interchange fee versus consumers especially in europe they're not super regulated but then so there's like tons of different things inside, but it's eventually, if you think from a technology or software paradigm, it's, it's, it's monolithic versus the new way which is going to come is how do you have a service-oriented architecture? So it's it's microservice architecture, for example. In, in software terms, monolithic is one single system with one database, one service provider, one of everything. And then microservices, it looks like chaos from the outside because you have tons of different services interchanging, but then you have a central message bus or a service process orchestrator, which we think Hubbook is, and that's where we focus, is where you have tons of different service providers. And why it's happening, I'll come to that in a minute. You see now there's tons of KYC providers. There's like seven, eight different KYC providers. Easily we can name them. Then there's different AML providers, anti-money learning software providers. Then there is, you know, car manufacturers, big ones, small ones, there's there's like a few of them, like five, six, ten definitely. And then there is like then there is the awakening of you know these old school entities like Trezor and who were doing that crow branding stuff from the past. Now suddenly they also call themselves banking and service. So they're also they, but they have you know accounts which are mapped to accounts or, you know like a proper bank and stuff. So what is what we see is that there's this fragmentation in the service supply side and that's where is if you if you look at the theory of marketplaces uh, a mom, a real good moment is when you have fragmentation on the supply side when you want to build a marketplace on top of it as a managed so your customer is actually isolated from you know so many different informations and seven or eight different contracts to to build a small use case you can just provide it as a marketplace one contract one compliance and one commercial relationship and they don't have to do anything regulatory so so that is how we see the old school versus the new generation. Okay, that's great because we can dig into that. And I think that's a nice segue to talk about Hubbock, right? So th- let's maybe just zoom out for a second and you can tell us how Hubbock started because I think that's relevant, right? To talking about how you're different and and Bass 2.0. So let's start there. How, how did how did you start Hubbock? Where did the idea come from? This is our fourth fintech product or let's call it fourth fintech pivot. So we started on the other side of the table. We were the consumers we started with a uh, with an initial idea in 2018, me and Ignacio, my co-founder, of building a high-frequency trading board for the crypto market. It's like where quants build software for the crypto. It doesn't work out. What a crazy idea. Uh, we pivoted towards launching a neobank for crypto. That is 2018. None of the European partners wanted to work with us. Went outside Europe to a country called Bahrain. It's a crypto-friendly regulator. They did the compliance sandbox. It's a copy of the FCA regulatory sandbox. Got in. There was no infrastructure. Came back to Spain. Said, okay, let's build a QR payments app because we believe 
uh, offline businesses have also the right to understand their customers. And nobody's built the Google Analytics for you know offline businesses. So in order to do that, what you want is a closed loop payment system like Alipay and WeChat have done in APAC. Right. And those guys have went from zero to nothing to basically directly 4G right, or 5G. So we tried to do that. So we, we built it uh, using a QR code library. So the merchants, it was a two-sided marketplace. Merchants can understand who's coming, uh, what the agenda is, what are the profiles, retention rates and everything. And then you could do segmented ad. And on the consumer side, we, we thought that that was great, right? To get a, a deal when you want and you have no... But there was not really a lot of pain in Europe, at least. Either we were early or too contrarian. So yeah. uh, Q- QR versus MasterCard and Visa in 2018, it didn't work out. So people want to pay with cards and iWatch and iPhones and you know all of that. So it's changing market habits is very expensive. So it failed. We put it again. Let's build something which we really... You know the market needs, so we started working on a Q, uh, on a, a corporate expense card. We built it on top of a banking as a service provider uh, from UK. I will not name them. And, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, it's a great company, and but we 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 found out that there's there's a lot of work to be done, especially from uh, from a customer point of view, uh, when you are a B two B corporate expense card where your customers are asking questions about uh, where is my money going to be safeguarded? Is it, who, where is your bank? And you say it's in UK, but they have a license in Estonia or Lithuania. And, the, and your customer is like, hey, why do I have to change all of this just for a card? So, uh, you know, they want feature parity. So if they are switching from their old, let's say, high street bank, towards you to get a better experience, they also want the same features. It's not about giving wallets to to kids and and cards for nail banks for kids. It's about providing service to people like Volkswagen and and these bigger, huge corporates who are going to have corporate expense. And you want to enable them to do that. The CFO of the company is going to ask you, where's my money going to be safeguarded? That's responsibility. Who is responsible? What is the guarantee? You know, why is my license in some, you know, in Baltics, why not? It's here. Why are you not working with a local banking partner? So it doesn't work. It doesn't fly. On top, then there's the you know. So it's good to build an MVP with banking as a service providers, but as soon as you raise money, like seed round or something, uh, you're gonna graduate from them. And we have seen it happen, right? So we see Revolut's graduating from N26 graduates. Everybody graduates eventually because the core business is financial service. We launched Pigari. It was great product, corporate expense in Spain, similar to a Soldo or, or Conto for, for Spandex for Spain in, in Mexico, a Spanish-speaking market. In March, COVID hit. There was not a lot of, you know, we just launched the first week, the end of March, there was COVID, lockdown. There's not of corporate expense to be managed. So we yes. kind of tried to find a distribution strategy for our product. Ended up finding out that there's other companies who want the product, but under their own brand, but they don't want the compliance hassle and everything else, which we went through to understand and build ledgers and sub-ledgers and how these spending controls and velocity controls and how the CFO can give a virtual card for an IT team versus a physical card for a sales guy on the road who just needs to spend in petrol pumps and parking and food and the car shouldn't work at the end of the day and the weekend the car should be blocked so all of this which is what a cfo wants the people who have been doing corporate expense softwares 
they understand, but they don't understand how to make this happen on a fintech product or with a banking partner. They will probably need expert financial service developers and you know who have built mail banks and stuff before to kind of consult and then it never happens. That's where we came in. So they reach out to us and said, look, we love what you build. Can you give us under us, you know, us under the under our brand? That's where we pivoted. We 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 had our first invoice. This time we're not gonna pivot towards you know the infrastructure layer, but we actually saw signs of real traction. And that was May 2020. So we are a very young company if you look about it. I mean, it's like not even a year old. We we launched with that one customer on demand. And then we built the platform and looked at, you know, all of the market. And we looked at, you know, how many different FIS and Marketa and GPS and Pentology and you know, there are all these different service providers for processing. And then you have, you know, KYC providers and then you have AML providers and manufacturers. And so all of this. And now with PSD2, you will probably need an FX rate provider because it's mandated. <laughs> so it goes on. Like it goes like way beyond on. And we looked at it. I, I think I did uh, 34 some interviews with different companies, service providers, when we were, you know, looking at how yeah. we're going to work with which partner. And and the, the opportunity, I think, was what if you aggregate them? So there is a higher set of costs for us to work against their APIs and have three card manufacturers instead of one. But for our customer, it lowers the cost to 30% than, than it was before with one card manufacturer. They have a f- wider feature set, right? So you can ask us gold-plated cards all the way to organic cards, all the way to dynamic CDV-based cards, which are for online fraud, right? So it changes the, the three-digit uh, code of the CVPN every five minutes. So we have this wider set because we were able to aggregate it against all this. So the mode, I think eventually ended up being, yes, there's a lot of demand, but that demand needs a white glove service and a managed service. And, and it's, it's not somebody's not going to knock on your door to get your API. You're probably going to go and have a chat with them, have a scope of work session, you know, have a, a flow of funds meeting to understand what is actually what they want to build. And if it's like really the right thing to build from a regulatory and compliance and everything point of view and, and then prescribe them a solution. Right. And then you make sure that your banking partners and everybody else on the other side of the market side is also happy with the, with the risks you are taking. So have you built a mode on compliance versus, you know, manual compliance versus, digitalized in real time are you doing sections and peps and transaction monitoring as you should be and are your partners happy and and you know are you embedding we we work with three banking partners right now and we embed or we made sure that we digitalize all of their rules and requirements which they had for us for our customers into one policy and that is very hard to do. I mean, our head of compliance, she she comes with 30 years of experience, but I mean, still it's it's an exercise not been done before. You're trying to, you know, take three different compliance policies and pull them into one single and making it simpler for the end customer and us and making it sure that it's in real time implemented on the on the technology stack. So it's not about, you know, checking in PDFs and putting out PDFs on rules and regulation, it's about really implementing and enforcing those rules on the platform. So yeah, that's that's where we come from and that's how we think about the product. And so, so if, if I may, the try to summarize, the, the insight came from the fact that you were on the demand side. So you, yes. you understood the pain that sometimes brands go through when they want to embed financial services. 
And then the other insight was around that fragmentation of the bass space. So there was room for somebody to do the aggregation. But it sounds like more than that as well. Or maybe that's just the other things you talked about are just a function of of the of reducing the friction for the brand. Because you've you've talked about being able to operate across geographies, about being able to do some level of compliance. So help us out. You know, if we were to create a sort of list of criteria for Bass 2.0, what what would be in there? It sounds like multiple geographies, aggregation, compliance. What else would you put in that list? Similar to what Amazon had, there are three core values. There's nobody wants, uh, so everybody wants an ex- a cheaper product, yeah. everybody wants the fastest delivery, and everybody wants the widest feature set. So for right. us, if you follow it, it's it's very simple, but just add one top of it, which is so yes, we want the customer to have a you know managed service and cheaper than probably another place, not not just you know, because they're not gonna come in for the core feature. They are looking for monetization and revenue. So how can you enable them? So you're giving them wholesale rates, you get them better prices. Second, they want the widest feature set. So okay, I can do cards, can I do accounts? Can I pay salaries? Can they pay taxes on these accounts? Okay, great. How many countries do you have with these accounts oh okay you have three different events what are you looking for next okay we have seven more coming with seven different countries can i go from europe to us because naturally uh, european startups and companies actually you know when they grow up their natural way is looking at us market uh, there are very few who go to other countries but mostly it's us so can you build a bridge between both markets? Yes. Okay. What is the capability and feature parity of your service versus a high street bank versus the global scalability of your platform? Right. So can you do everything which you just said in Spain, Germany, UK, you know, Netherlands? Can you also do this in US? So in US, it's a whole different way of looking at it. I mean, there's ACH and things we 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 I mean, people are still taking paper checks. You know, they're, they're service providers for checks. So how do you, you know, what is the feature set over there? So the widest feature set, a good price, speed to market is important because people want to launch in eight to 12 weeks maximum. They're not waiting for like yeah. months of nine months. And then it's about the most important one, compliance. That is included for like your banking partners are looking for it. Your customers are looking for it. Customers are looking not to do anything because they don't understand it. So they are waiting for you to guide them, like managed service. Okay, don't worry, you don't have to become an agent. We will take care of your compliance. We'll take care of onboardings. You just have to follow these different guidelines and you have to do this, 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 this. And in always, you know, as program manager as well, you're thinking about different programs if you're talking about card bills, that every thing is being followed and basically you are taking risk instead of, and passing it through to the end customer. This is normally what happened before. With all due respect yeah. to all colleagues in the market, they were registering agents and distributors and passing along the risk, saying, oh, I'm not the only one doing it. Here's this guy who's actually a reseller, and you know he's also doing it. So when the regulator comes, they can also point it to you, saying he didn't follow, we, we, we told them to follow these guidelines, right? So now you're saying that Hubbuck is taking the risk for you. It's not only regulatory risk, it's about floats. Can you manage float settlements? How how do you manage liquidity when you pass through three or seven, four or five days of visa float or versus MasterCard asking you three, two days or as well, sometimes depending on the use case. So who's gonna put, is your customer gonna put in like three days of transaction volume float for you? No, right? I mean, 
Homebook is going to take care of it. So the current customer is looking for that. The regulator is looking for, okay, are the PEPs sanctions? What is happening? These transactions coming in, going out into ledgers, are you monitoring them? You know, or FinSec, all of these different things, SCA regulation now coming in. You know, are you following? And they want to see from a regulatory point of view. I think when we worked with the Central Bank of Berlin, we learned something which was working with the regulator is very different from providing service to the market. But good regulators, they understand and they adapt, but they also want to build trust with you. Trust is a very key factor. And to build trust, it's very hard. You really have to work for it and you can lose it in a second like Wildcard did. Right. Yep. Yep. So, yeah, it's interesting because because if we take the, if we continue with the Amazon analogy, so you've talked about how the customer wants cheaper, they want faster, they want you know richer feature set. Amazon is also working with a whole bunch of other suppliers in its marketplace, and they want fulfillment and they want you know certain things as well. And it seems to me that you're doing both, right? Which is and and regulation or compliance is is a critical inf- interface between both because the customer doesn't want to have to worry about it, and at the same time. The banking partner wants certain levels of assurance as well, right? And my sense is that, you know, if we, if we talk about BAS 1.0, I think there was this sort of almost lazy assumption that if I can provide the APIs and the, and the interface between banks and brands, then I'll always be able to to attract banking partners and, and other BAS services providers. But I guess it's I guess it's going to be more competition on both sides, more competition for demand, more competition for supply. And do you think that? It is compliance that's going to make the difference in terms of winning both sides of the marketplace. Yes. So how do you make comfortable your banking partner or the regulator? It comes down to compliance. And can you make a mode out of it? So if you, I think at Hubbock, the biggest team is product team, so the software development team. Yeah. And then the second biggest and the most important one at the core, at the heart of the company is compliance. So if you join, combine you know, compliance, with technology, that is where you can build interesting stuff, but you have to know what you're doing and it has to be scalable and it has to go across all of your customer base. That's clear. I, I'm, I'm getting this real picture of what's different about BAS 2.0 than BAS 1.0 because when you were talking about one BAS 1.0, it was almost like the tech didn't really matter, right? Because you were sort of saying everybody has great APIs, everybody can provide a sandbox, almost like there wasn't that much differentiation in the tech versus what you've got, which is a new tech stack you've got aggregation and you've got compliance, right? So there's there's the basis of something which, the kernel of something which is differentiated and defensible. We are not only also providing, that is very true. So we are not only also providing the compliance layer or, or that is at the heart of the company. With regards to tech, just to give you an idea, when we think about tech, I'm a software developer with plus years of experience. So we actually have unit tests. It's a test with automated tests, which fail if the, any part of the platform does not respond over 100 milliseconds. The SLA is 100 milliseconds. At 100 milliseconds, you actually feel everything instant. So that is where we think about scalability from a product and technology point of view. It's not because imagine you can build all the compliance and everything, but if your tech stack, for example, is slower, the person building on top of you is also getting that, you know, it's it's, it's aggregates. The time yeah, it compounds, right? Across so, the latency compounds, yeah. Exactly. So you have to, we are not only trust building compliance from a technology point of view, we have to be scalable as a platform which you can power N number of, you know, revolutes. 
on top of it. And the transaction volume, all of them aggregated generate. And we are also the system of authorization. So just to give you an idea, we are the system of ledger as well and the authorization. What it means is our cards, when somebody touches one of our customers' cards at a point of sale or online payment, is going to come through the, the scheme rails all the way to us. And we have two seconds normally, uh, SLA from the scheme is two seconds, to respond to it, implement business logic on top of it. So if it's a corporate expense card, somebody's put some you know spending rules on top of it. That all needs to happen before two seconds. And we have to check if that account, that card might be having three different ledgers and three different banking partners for us. So all of this orchestration, that is where we come in. I do not want to say that we only care about compliance. We are a product and a compliance company. So we combine compliance with technology and then magic happens. It's not about just sales, and which is great. We have like a lot of customers, but but this is like where you build the most. So you build trust with your regulators and partners. You build trust with your customers by providing an, a great SLA on services. And then you can also scale out. That is where you build trust for your investors because you're not actually have larger churns. Your contracts are longer terms. You're betting on on the next five to ten years of the market. You just raised a very healthy seed round through Y Combinator, and as I understand it, it was you know very heavily oversubscribed. So it seems to me that smart investors get what you're doing. They understand how you're evolving into the your next generation of of bass. And I suppose my question is, what does a competitive environment look like for BAS 2.0? Is it people like Stripe Treasury? Is it potentially people coming in from different spaces? So people that already manage that sort of many-to-many orchestration. So I would think people like open banking platforms that already provide the the routes from customers into many banking providers or potentially even some of the more advanced SaaS providers that, again, providing many-to-many interactions. So where, when you look out, where do you see the... C- competition coming from is it is it best 1.0 competitors that step up or is it a new generation of of competitors that may be coming from from adjacent spaces i think stripe treasury is a validation of our thesis of yep. one part which is instead of competing against the bank you need to work with them and you need to aggregate them so they're aggregating or they're at least staying on the website there yc lambs really really expect you know respect them it's it's a great company they're an amazing company They've changed how you know, internet e-commerce works. But they are talking about aggregating four big banks. We say that is great. Somebody needs to aggregate the rest of the smaller banks, right? Yeah. So but we are both agreeing that it's time to build a platform which is scalable, trustworthy, and and customers can actually don't have to go through hoops and hurdles to to use it. Right. So it's a managed way of doing but then there is their their outlook at from coming from their businesses that okay you get a here's the form fill up the form so there's no touch point it's all automated digitalized and and you're going to get an api and you're going to build it that's where we differ that's where we're completely opposite our approach is we come we look at the use case or we have a chat with you we understand the flow of funds it's a very enterprise kind of you know point of view. Here we are very similar to Adian, for example, who has yep. 400 merchants, makes more revenue than Stripe with hundreds and thousands of merchants because it's very completely different go-to-market strategies. With regards to banking 1.0 competitions, you 
so here's the thing when when i was like actively developing i still sometimes do but from a solutions architect or a software architect point of view if you have built a monolithic system you're looking at the rewrite if you're happy to do that you will be doing that actually to rewrite it into a service oriented architecture or microservice architecture so if you want to do that that means recordings reshwings you know lots of stuff which people don't even yeah so, so in, in short it's going to be hard to go from bas 1.0 to bas 2.0 but what about the people entering from adjacent spaces people that are already not monolithic already have you know pretty uh, yeah. powerful orchestration yeah. platforms it's not like there is no competition um there is i mean stripe treasury just raised 600 million or something and opening on europe so they started issuing europe but then they are giving you cards and their focus is you know their their go to market is their stripe connect user you know who who's already using the the stripe connect function of you know taking payments for the marketplace and then they are only yep. doing the merchant payouts either slabbing on top of a card that is a corporate expense card and then if you give an account and then you can hold it for a longer term and that's it uh, so there that is banking as a service or stripe treasury is focused on their marketplaces business we on the other hand look at talking about you know petroleum companies and mobility companies and expense management companies and taxes and you know vendor payouts we have customers who are doing b2b payments so it it it, it is a very different approach towards what their market is versus ours because as the market is super huge and we can talk how we think about the market in a second it's very simple and then there is you know the, the markets and there is players like wodeno and 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 ion bank yeah. and you know all, all these different and phoenix for example in the us modern treasury another voice you know so they have different players and different go to markets but it's it's very hard i still think to understand coming from acquiring which is easy almost commoditized now there are aggregators of aggregators and payfax of payfax aggregating payfax like primario right and you know, versus payment method it's completely different the kyc's and merchant onboardings for uh, opening accounts for kyb is very 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 hard and expensive and onboarding an end consumer which is easy anybody can do it on fido take a picture liveness check and there you go right um, pass it through complied wantage uh, you know passes peps and sanctions that's it but now onboard a company which is a corporate you know with, with complicated subsidiaries everywhere else how do you go along that that is where you come in are you taking emails of zip files of compliance kybs or are you actually having an api endpoint which actually digitalizes at least giving it a try on first digitalizing a kyb fully completely digitalized and going through the api versus you know sending zip files over emails so that, that there is very very diff different ways of looking at it. but there is definitely competition but the market is huge as well so to give you a flavor on how we think about the market yeah of course there is the trillions and all of that stuff <laughs> we have a very simple thing coming from yc Uh, you learn something which is you need to go bottoms up it doesn't matter the market size because that increases and we have seen examples of coinbase and you know stripe is yc lamb we have uh, we have brex is a yc lamb ramp is a yc lamb i mean the list goes on so these are the big ones then you have airbnb and everybody else so the, you know somebody started with airbed and breakfast on uh, airbed literally airbed and then it became airbnb so i think uh, what we think about is the market size is bottoms up we take 
it's very hard to do it because there is so many different features you can add to build a bigger market or a smaller market. We think a base point, good example is go to the ACB, European Central Bank, and you look at the non-cash transactions. So if you look at non-cash transactions across the countries where we can operate, so for example, US, Europe, APAC, almost all of it, 58 countries we can open accounts, we can issue in 22 countries, MasterCard and Visa. We work with both teams. So if we take across these countries, bottoms up approach, we take number of cash, non-cash transactions. So any transaction which is not cash, that is around 800 million transactions Sorry, 800 billion transactions last year, and it's growing 7 to 8%, depending on the region. Uh, APAC is doubling almost, but Europe is still growing slowly, but not that big. And then there's US as well. So if you take this market size and you say, okay, do you charge per transaction? Yes. So hypothetically, if you're charging like, you know, 20 cents, let's say, Divide the total number of non-cash transactions by the total number of cents per transaction. That is around 150 billion of bottoms of market size for non-cash wow. transactions. And just just give us a flavor of how fast you're already growing. So we joined YC in December with 54 thousand dollars of uh, annual recurring revenue, and we did demo day in March with 750 thousand dollars of. Uh, revenue. We are currently at seven hundred. No, sorry, eight hundred and ninety thousand dollars of uh, revenue, and we have total bookings across eleven customers of three point six million dollars in wow, contract so, value. So, it really substantiates what I said at the start, which is you guys are really on a tear. And I think those people who haven't heard of you now will be hearing about you pretty soon. Hassan, this has been a, a wonderful discussion. I think everybody would have learned a lot, and everybody will now have a clear sense of what is. Banking 2.0. And just before we wrap up, I wanted to, to talk about recommendations. So every podcast we finish with asking our guests for a set of recommendations. So if you're game, I'm going to ask you for five recommendations, the first of which is a favorite book. I have multiple of those. Uh, I'm sure. I mean, like, I'm sure. You, you, you're a very so learned I, man. So just, uh, just, <laughs> just give us one. If you don't mind. I'm just a student of you know trying to understand so I think a good example or a very good book is The Innovation Stack from Jim McAlvey, who's the co-founder at Square. It talks about how to build innovation and compete with companies who have never been competed. I think Amazon entered Square's space and then left it quietly. Uh, I think it's the only company that left the space uh, yeah. so far. So that is a very good book to understand innovation. And is Square a company that you particularly admire? I uh, yes, so I, I really like how they think about things. It's just I think they really understand how you build growth loop upon growth loop, right? Yes, I think the key over there is they have they take the risks, but they take them in a way that they first understand the the secrets behind it. So, for example. If I was to talk about you know card uh, issuing and and if I don't know what is a APW profile to register a card with Mastercard, which is a basic thing if you do card implementations, or I don't know CNS profiles and stuff, then you don't really understand what you're doing. And if you don't really understand what you're doing, first you need to understand it, and then you can innovate on top of it. 
So they, they, they have done it for multiple times, right? I mean, they started with when people were, you know, as in the book also, they called, talk about you know, people not looking, the banks were not willing to go outside those city walls uh, and, and give, you know, machines to somebody like merchant in the marketplace. And they did it. So there are two options there. Either you can be horribly wrong or you can be very good and very right. And that's, I think, most of the time, if you take risks and you understand the market, you might be right. So they have been right multiple times so far. Good. Okay, so so first recommendation, Innovation Stack by Jim McKelvey. Okay, so next one, a favorite recent article. It's called The New Mode in Financial Services <laughs> okay. by Mr. Ben Robinson from Aperture. And it's a very, very good read if if you give it a couple of times. You know, you have to read it a couple, at least in my case, I'm, I'm probably slow. So I, I read it a couple of times and I still have it. I think it's a great piece. Well, that's extremely kind. And I, I want to tell you, and I don't know how many podcasts we've done, but it's lots. And nobody's ever recommended an Aperture article before. So thank you very much indeed. That's very kind. <laughs> and then um, the next one is a favorite influencer. So somebody whose essays thinking you regularly turn to for inspiration or to learn? There are multiples of them, but there is somebody very, very interesting, I think is, and they are not investors just by the way, it's Ben Horowitz. He has a, a particular way of using rap to, to explain things directly. Uh, he also has a great book. If I was to op- give an option number two for a book, <laughs> read, yeah. uh, read or listen to hard things about the hard things from Ben. Uh, it's an amazing read, especially for CEOs and founders. Uh, and, uh, and you feel like you're not alone, which most of the time happens. I think that is a very distinctive way of looking at business and, and entrepreneurship. And he uses those those rap lyrics, which is if you think about it, they just they are amazing because in two two lines they they convey you a message which most of the time I would or some good entrepreneur would spend like you know three four days of writing a letter to explain the same thing which they just explain in two three lines. So I think he's an amazing uh, write to read. Would you describe yourself to paraphrase Ben Horowitz? Would you describe yourself as a wartime or a peacetime CEO? Uh, wartime. Yeah, that's good because I think you need to be right at the stage the company's at. Yeah, I think the kind of growth rates you were talking about—they're not peacetime growth rates. Right? <laughs> it's thirty-nine percent month over month, man. So, <laughs> yeah, okay. And then the next one is a favorite brand. That is hard. I mean, SpaceX. Okay, like that is it so far. I mean, second would be Tesla. I don't own one, and I'm not invested in any way. But it's like somebody who came in and really disrupted something which is not building an app for something of something it's funny it's funny you say spacex as a brand because elon musk is one of these people who says he doesn't invest in marketing he doesn't invest in branding so is it the brand of spacex or is it the kind of the ambition that's that's captured by through spacex so brand everybody has a different take so if you link if you ask me what SpaceX means to me, it's like it's like the next gen thing, which really, really hard innovation, right? Real innovation, right? It's it's not building just another app for something, yeah. right? which we have been doing as an industry for like since the 70s. What is the big breakthrough which has happened? This is 
a cool thing and really, really the next leap, right? So we might be able to, or our kids might be able to travel and, and you know, live on other 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 places. So that's like really commoditizing and, and bringing it mainstream, that space travel. But from a design and aesthetic and a product point of view, it's an amazing uh, achievement. I mean, they focus more about, I mean, it's engineering in general. So as, a, as an engineer, I'm probably focused as a brand on that side. It's simple. It's very hard to make simple things. Like it's very, very hard to make simple design. And you have an yep. example of Apple, but design only doesn't work without robustness and scalability and, you know, service levels. I used to use Ubuntu and Linux. So I come from the other side of the table. So I was the guy who would not use Linux, uh, Windows because thinking that, okay, you know, I don't like, I don't want to, you know, get logged into their system. And I would rather prefer Linux and compile my own kernel and, you know, all those different variables needed to use a laptop. And then I one day switched to Apple and it had the same core, which is the BSD core of Linux. But the the product itself just works. The most important part is not only design, but it also just always works. It never lets you down, right? Yes. So that is what changes something from other other competitors or, or other products. And I also think that Elon Musk is being a bit disingenuous when he says he doesn't invest in marketing because product <laughs> is marketing, right? Yes. And uh, placement is marketing. Having Tesla showrooms in the center of every major city is is marketing right but anyway let's move on and then the last one is a productivity hack so how do you make sure that you are productive every day in your role as a world-time ceo it's very hard so something i read from a blog uh, from a company also YC Lam, really respect them they've, they've built an amazing tool called superhuman and they talk about uh, aggregated calendars so uh, how to how to make sure that you're you have enough time for concentrated work versus just changing context from one one to another meeting, and now with remote, I mean it's uh, it's it's just going crazy, right? So uh, I think it's a very good read about if you can stack together your, for example, in my case, your one on ones on Mondays, and then or, or your reports if you have any, they have their one on ones on Mondays, and then it goes down on Tuesdays to to a specific set where everybody comes in with a clear idea of what we're going to talk about. And, and you have those pizza type small meetings like Amazon did. And, and then on Thursdays, you have a full committee. So everything which rolls from Mondays to Tuesdays can be touched on Tuesday. And then you have, and then you still have two days away from just, you know, managing meetings into concentrated work. That's uh, an excellent tip. To work on it. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent tip. You're right. Yeah, particularly in the remote world. The mental gym, gymnastics, right? Jumping between meetings, clients. It's really tough. Yeah, so yeah. I think that's an excellent productivity tip. Hassan, so I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show and um, looking forward to doing this again sometime. Thanks a lot, Ben. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Structural Shifts by Aperture. To learn more about us, visit Aperture.co. And while you're there, make sure that you read Ben's article that Hassan referenced in today's episode.